Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan. Before we begin today's episode, a quick reminder, we are on Twitter and Instagram. Our Twitter is at immigrantly underscore pod and our Instagram is at immigrantly pod. Be sure to follow us and also you can support us through Patreon, GoFundMe or by buying our beautiful tote bag. You can visit our website immigrantlypod.com for all the information. Your support literally helps us sustain the podcast. So if you want more interesting, introspective, informative stories, please be sure to support us. So now to our today's guest, Hari Kunzru. He is a British Indian novelist and journalist. He's the author of the novels, The Impressionist, Transmission, My Revolutions, Gods Without Men and White Tears. And his most recent work is Red Bill, a novel that explores the idea of searching for order in a world that frames madness as truth. And in a time where the current events in America feel like they are moving us closer to a dystopian reality and it's hard not to feel frazzled by it all because I am feeling extremely anxious, I thought it's a good time to sit down with somebody like Hari who can give us insights into what he thinks is happening in America. So we talked about American politics, we talked about Hari's podcast, Into the Zone, his recent novel Red Pill and so much more. I'm sure you don't want to miss this. So let's dive in. There is a great resentment in white America, despite the obvious material, social and political advantages white America has. And I mean, the question for the rest of us becomes, you know, are, are, are those things that can be kind of rationally addressed through policy or is it or is it just mm. I mean frankly I mean I think a lot of it is just racism Hari thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly and taking the time out to do this interview well thank you for inviting me so we are going to talk about a lot of things. There is a lot to unpack. You have a new book, Red Pill. You launched your podcast, Into the Zone, which I have listened to. And then there is American politics, which right now is a shit show. But we'll start there. How are you feeling about the current state of the country? I'm in a state of complete uh, I mean, I wouldn't. I, I, I'm sort of beyond words, to be honest, right now. I mean, I each time I think it can't get any more disorganized and and absurd. It 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 does, you know. Mm. And and for Trump to to release himself from hospital and then take his mask off and then announce that he's going to carry on as if he's not highly infectious is extraordinary to me. We've, we're in a situation where the White House is the center of uh, an ongoing COVID cluster with new cases being reported every day. And yet they're determined not to act as if that's a real thing. It's, it's, it's like it's kind of totally got unmoored from any, any sense of reality at all. Hari, but are you surprised? Because when American people elected Trump, they were electing a reality 
TV star. So his theatrics, standing on the White House balcony, waving to people, saluting, ripping off his mask and telling everyone that they should not be scared of COVID? No, I think that's right. I mean, he he is somebody who mediates everything. I mean, he roots all his relationships with the world through the media. And I don't think he has a real sense of his job as as being kind of policy-based. And I don't think he has a sense of his job as governing. He has a sense of himself as somebody who is presenting at all times. I mean, the, the hmm. videos that he released yesterday, as you say, with himself on the balcony looking like, you know, Mussolini and uh, and the, yeah. the helicopter landing to the sound of martial music. I mean, that's like a kind of weird mashup between something from the 1930s and The Bachelor. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's all image and, and no policy. He has, as I say, no real intuitive feeling that the things that he does affect the lives of millions of people. Are we en route to a full-on autocracy? I think there's a chance of that. Yes, I think if he wins this election, I am not convinced that American institutions will survive. I mean, the, the, the discovery of the last four years has been that a lot of checks and balances don't function they, because they were dependent not on unenforceable rules or laws, but just on norms of behavior and the administration's decision to ignore those norms. You know, I think once, you know, once impeachment had happened and, and the mm. Republican Party decided not to uh, impeach despite clear breaches of, of his duty, then there was no further sanction and he's been acting in a way that's kind of unchecked. Do you think he's aiming for limitless presidency? Because he has alluded to that in the past. Do you think that's something that American public should be scared of? I don't think he has a particular strategic vision, but absolutely hmm. I think he would love to be the first president to, to go on beyond eight years. It would feed his ego. I'm more worried about the the structures that have sort of assembled themselves around him. There are smart people with, to my mind, very sinister agendas who have latched on mm. to the, the kind of Trump's ability to create chaos and, and, and uh, break things in order to reshape mm. American politics. I mean, there are people who see this, obviously, with the Supreme Court as the, the main weapon. They see this as the, the way to reshape American politics around an evangelical religious agenda. There's the mm. sort of Miller mm. faction within the White House who want to return America to a sort of white's first agenda. I mean, they are sort of nostalgic for the days when um, it was sort of acknowledged that America was a white country and the rest of us were here under sufferance. And then, I mean, and then mm. there's the kind of the, the old favorite of the Republican Party, which is the sort of deregulation, upward transfer of wealth faction. Mm. I don't think there is a real commitment to democratic politics that I can see in anybody who's around the White House right now. I don't think they they have a sense that of the the people as anything other than an inconvenience. And if they could kind of root round the need to um, persuade the population, I think they mm. would do that. Having grown up in Pakistan, I've always had this 
healthy skepticism of structures and systems and the government. And granted that Pakistan has weak systems, so that could be one of the reasons. But what really surprises me, A, is American population's naivete at what's been fed to them, and B, how America has always been dismissive of other countries for not upholding the same democratic institutions that we do, right? Mm. But what we've learned so far is that these institutions are vulnerable, as you pointed out. And if or when there is a democratic demise, are American people equipped to deal with that? Yes, I mean, I, I think these are very good questions. I mean, firstly, you know, we're in, we're in a moment where a lot of people around the world are very familiar with what happens when the, let's say, the nominal rules diverge from the actual operation of power. And P- Pakistan is a place where, where people are mm. familiar with the difference between what's supposed to happen according to the Constitution and what actually happens, as in many other countries. It's notable to mm. me that a lot of journalists are still reaching for foreign comparisons. They say, "Oh, this feels a bit North Korean," or "This is, uh, you know, this is like some, this is like Castro uh, in in Cuba," and they can't mm. even now bring themselves to see that this rot comes from within the American yes. system. This is absolutely an expression of the anti-democratic tendencies from within America. It's not some foreign import or an alien thing this is this is to do with the erosion of of democratic governance here in the US and it's it's an expression of a tendency that's been at work not just in the Trump administration but for for much longer as to whether the american people are capable of withstanding a full scale autocratic attempt mm. should one be made after let's say, a Trump win or a, even, a, you know, a, a, a refusal to concede in the election. Exactly. I'm I'm very sceptical. I'm, I'm worried about that. There's an increasing feeling that this is actually happening to us here right now. But there's a kind of, I don't know, I don't know whether this is, this is, this is something that's unique to Americans. I don't think Americans are maybe more complacent than any other population. But you know, mm. imagine what it might have felt like if you were a sort of settled member of the bourgeoisie in, in 1920s Germany. The the idea mm. that everything would be about to come crashing down would involve you in kind of dismantling your life and, 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 and dismantling your whole worldview. So it's much, much easier to say that's overblown, that you're being hysterical when you're saying this is a possibility. And so people allowed it to creep up on them. And why... So many people were still sitting in their well-appointed drawing rooms when the knock on the door came. It's hard for people Mm. to imagine Mm. the complete upending of everything they know and everything they've been taught. And I suppose there is a particular complacency that comes with America's position for the last century within the world. It's seen itself as a as the sort of beacon of democratic governance and has assumed that the weakness that other systems display just wasn't there you know there are plenty of americans who are much more aware of 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 how things actually function here but i think in the population at large there's been a sense that america was exceptional in that way but i think that's where the problem lies because the narrative that's been fed is that america upholds democratic values across the world 
And somehow this ignores or sidelines the aspect of America's imperialist aspirations. There's less focus on historical reckoning, whether it's indigenous communities, genocide, history of slavery, Chinese Exclusion Act or family separation, which has happened in the past. I feel if we spoke about these things more, we would have a better understanding of our weaknesses and deal more effectively with our inadequacies and have a more healthy and nuanced political discourse and not consider every institution as sacrosanct. What do you think? Well, I think that's a fair point. Uh, I mean, I, I do think things are shifting now in that there are a lot of people who are far more aware of America's real position as a historical actor within the world you still have mm. a very, very strong pushback, especially from Republican Party politicians and supporters whenever you point these things out, because, you know, you have the narrative of American exceptionalism that is at base. It's a it's a religious narrative. It's a Protestant religious narrative that mm. suggests that America is the exceptional country because they're building the city of God here on Earth. It has a special destiny. Mm. And if you criticize that, you are in a sense doing the devil's work. Whereas, you know, you're mm. undermining the possibility of the of the shining city of God. And so they push back very, very hard. But for most people who don't subscribe to that quite extreme uh, religious narrative, I think there's a sense that, as you say, the conversation here would be more healthy if people were mm. able to acknowledge what has actually happened? I mean, I'm I grew up in Britain, which obviously has its own history and its own blind spots. But coming to live in the US as I did twelve years ago, I mm. thought I really understood America's relationship to to history, and but I I didn't understand how deep the wish to suppress some of it went. I mean, if you think about the history mm. of slavery and what happened afterwards, even now there are there's such a pushback when you try to get people to acknowledge just the basic facts, you know, what happened during Reconstruction, exactly. how you know, how sort of systematic campaigns of terror were put in place in in order to disenfranchise and exclude black voters. I mean, mm. the question of empire is very, very interesting because of course that was one of America's great ways of defining itself against Britain and the other European powers. I mean, the you know, the narrative here is that they are bad because they were colonialists and America has never had such an ambition. Whereas, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> it, it takes five minutes on the Internet to sort of scratch your head and say, well, you know, what did happen in the Philippines? What status does Puerto Rico have? You know, exactly. and there is, you know, there is an American history of imperialism and, and colonization, which gives the lie to that particular part of its of its sort of historical self-conception. I mean, the question is what we do with that. I mean, I think like people on the right here always, you know, say, well, you know, you're you just want us to feel guilty. You just want us to 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 to, to weaken us through through self-hatred. And mm. I you know, I I don't think that a kind of honest assessment w is necessarily aimed at undermining national prosperity or whatever whatever it's the accusation yeah. would be. I I think it will, you know, it will allow people to make a political foundation that is more inclusive, 
and that is stronger, that has greater buy-in. I mean, right now, hmm. I mean, America is a country where, which works very, very well for a small elite and increasingly has social relations that look like the social relations of the period before the First World War. The gap between rich and poor is as great as it's been hmm. in a century. And in order to hold together, especially at this time of extreme political polarization, somebody's going to have to find a way of getting everybody to buy in again. You know, everybody's going to have to actually give their assent to a political project in this country which will produce a good life and will produce a, mm. a, a fair settlement for far more people than it does now. And I think, as you suggest, that uh, a historical reckoning of some kind is part of that. Exactly. And what scares me, Harry, about all that's happening, especially polarization, is that it may even deepen because since Trump took office, the idea of boogeyman, which America has had fair share of boogeyman in the past, is changing. It's shifting, right? So before Trump's presidency, if you thought about boogeyman, you would think about Muslims mm -hmm. or maybe Russians, China. But since his presidency, since he took office, it's becoming more and more of an insider. Now the antagonist is not a brown person as much as a liberal Democrat, right? The whole idea of antagonist is also evolving and it's beginning to include somebody who you cannot distinguish on the basis of physical attributes or accent or ethnicity. And that could cause a lot of instability within American society. Yeah, I think one of the, the truths about the Trump movement is that it is profoundly disintegrative. I mean, it de it demands mm. the the constant generation of enemies, and it demands, in order to function, a kind of atmosphere of turbulence and um, you know a, a sort of uh, a, a permanent state of emergency. I mean, in some ways, this has been a long time coming. I mean, I I think a lot of us would would point to the reaction to the 9-11 events as as being a moment when a lot of this was sown. I mean, with the with the kind of emergence of, of the security state after 9-11, mm, various mm. kind, a sort of a sort of permanent state of emergency was put in place then. And, and much of the legislation that um, rolled back people's protections against the state were you know, are still in place. And the, we have to remember, of course, that the the wars have never formally ended that were started as a result of that. I mean, and with that, you know, as you say, the enemies have historically been much more easy to spot. And maybe we are in mm. a position right now that is more reminiscent of the, of the kind of Reds under the beds, McCarthy era. Mm, you know, I, I mean, mm. I, I'm I'm very sort of struck by the sort of uh, B movies of the 1950s, where you know you wouldn't know which of your neighbours is the alien. Um, you know, yeah, you were you wouldn't exactly. you know by looking at them, you can't tell who harbours this. You know, those they were obvious metaphors for communism. I mean, there were. There was a fear that the you know that the enemy was within the fifth column, um, mm. and 
that's certainly a kind of apocalyptic mindset that's being promoted by uh, the current administration because it works to its advantage. And that is obviously playing with fire. I have no sort of sense, you know, if, if, if we were to sort of, you know, play the, the thought experiment of, of, you know, what would further disintegration look like and what would the actual sort of geographical mm. divisions be? Um, I mean, that's a very interesting question. I can't, I mean, I, I think mm. there's such a sort of patchwork of, of, uh, liberals and conservatives in, in all, you know, parts of the US. I mean, it would be very difficult for, for say a kind of MAGA state to be carved out of, I don't know where, like Idaho or somewhere like that, that mm. would be kind of mm. meaningful and viable. But, um, you know, if we if we sort of say that we are a long way from something that would look like the southern states seceding in the eighteen, uh, you know, in the, in the Civil War, we're still in a in a situation where I think the displays of force on the street, the militia movement, the boogaloo movement, the um, the the kind of willingness to engage in in sort of civil war type rhetoric could could lead to, I mean, greater loss of life and much more violence. I mean, where, mm. I mean, where I am in New York, uh, one of our issues is is the politics of the police. The police union has yeah. has recently endorsed Trump, and if you look at the the makeup of the NYPD, a great amount of the the sort of senior leadership and the union leadership, they don't live in the city. They live out in Long Island. They live in the suburbs, mm. and they don't they don't like the city. They don't like the liberal values of the city. They don't like the people mm. who they are policing. I mean, you know, the rank and file NYPD are very often people of color, and they're much more likely to live live here but certainly the NYPD as a political force is is becoming more and more clear in that it has allegiances and it and it polices and you know, I mean obviously there's the you know the the movement against police violence is very explicitly orientated towards defunding them and weakening their power I mean we have a very yeah. strange situation to me in the way in the way that the mayor seems to be unable to to control the police department and uh, the police department mm. can do things like just decide not to work or slow down. I mean, they, you know, there was a point in the summer where they seemed to be maybe trying to kind of generate a crime wave in order to force the mayor's hand. I mean, this kind of thing, these are our police. These are these are our law enforcement. And if they take a kind of political side, then, uh, then things could get very, very sinister if they decide to function exactly. in the way that, uh, let's say, ICE is functioning increasingly as a sort of internal police force. You know, I, I, I feel like that um, it, it's Trump's ambition to use ICE and the CBP as mm. as a sort of federal political police. You know, it's so interesting you bring this up because I think that's where, again, narrative matters and America's idea of safety has to be reconceptualized. Um, Americans feel safe around police, around law enforcement. And I've had these conversations with my Pakistani friends, and they feel the same way. I live in the suburbs of New York. I live in Westchester County. And I think, like at least my town, I believe, is predominantly Republican. I see hatred towards, or not hatred, but resentment towards the other, or however you define the other. 
And we have to go back to how we redefine those narratives. And unfortunately, what I don't see happening with Biden and Kamala Harris's um, ticket is that they are not making a conscious effort to redefine those narratives, um, which may be because they don't want to jeopardize elections right now. But that, to me, sometimes is frustrating. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of election strategy, I, I feel everybody feels the sort of the dire's cast. This, you know, it's not when nobody's mm. in the business of attempting to to kind of persuade the base on the other side of, of anything. I mean, it's all it's all about low motivation voters and, and I mean, the few strange souls who maybe after four years are still undecided about what they think. But mm. I mean, I think it's what I'm saying is about about a new settlement is that there is a kind of there is a great resentment in white America, despite the obvious material social and political advantages white america has and i mean the question for the rest of us becomes you know are, are, are those things that can be kind of rationally addressed through policy or is it or is it just mm. i mean frankly i mean i think a lot of it is just racism i mean it's very very yeah. deeply ingrained in some people that this is a white man's country and that um white men should be able to define the terms. I mean, and there's no arguing with that if that's, you know, if, if that's somebody's sort of deep conviction that, uh, you know, something has gone wrong at the point when, um, you know, there could be a black president and uh, and mm. that people of colour could be in other positions of, of power. You know, I, I, as far as I can tell from from sort of observing the scene in the last four years, I feel, yeah, there's probably about a 30% plus of white America who are, whether they would define themselves as, as racist or not, they are kind of deeply invested in white supremacy. That's true. Hey, I want to pivot a little. I want to talk about your podcast and your book, and we'll start with your podcast. So I was listening to your podcast episode, That Ain't Country, in which you talk about boundaries um, in American popular music. And you talked about the term authenticity, how you are on alert when you hear it. You've even called it a racially loaded term because you think it can be used by various groups to exclude others as a gatekeeping mechanism. And you give example of your mom, who is English, and your dad, who is Indian, and both communities never fully accepted you as authentic which, by the way, makes total sense. Um, and I'm sure it's terrible for a person to be excluded. But when I think about authenticity and its application, I think the impact the word has is pretty much a function of who is using it for gatekeeping purposes. For instance, if it's a dominant population using the term to exclude marginalized communities, then the act itself manifests in dehumanizing the other or stripping them of rights and privileges. So for instance, in this is how I would structure it, if white people are calling someone less American, they are in essence establishing hierarchy of dominance, right? The phrase real American, you know, is uh, and the real America is thrown around in politics here, and I think it has exactly that function. Right. However, in case of marginalized communities, the term, in my opinion, is an attempt to preserve part of their identity, which is sometimes already threatened by the dominant population, right? 
What I'm trying to say is if they were to allow people who are not quintessentially representative of that group, they are risking diluting their oppression. Do you think it matters who is exercising the right to authenticate? Well, I think you've you've hit on the huge paradox about any politics that sort of orientates itself around that because what you say is absolutely true. I mean, if it's being... You know, if it's being used in the way that it's very frequently used to demarcate groups of people who are full citizens or full full people from some some other group who are kind of uh, the waste, mm. then then it has the sort of uh, the consequences that we've been talking about. But absolutely, there are plenty of marginalised groups of people who are attempting to take control of their uh, cultural narratives and and you know and mm. their resources and and uh, by using narratives of authenticity. I mean, the indigenous people, for example. I mean, there's some very interesting work in kind of Canadian law around how one would think about cultural authenticity as a sort of cultural mm. possession of indigenous people. I mean, I think that gets into deep trouble very quickly, but as a sort of general sort of broad brush principle, you know, it, it's intuitively understandable, isn't it? Is that you want to be able to say, this is the real us and this is not the real us. But then obviously you get to the to the question of adjudication. Who will judge who is authentic and who's... Hmm. who's hmm. not i mean i'm reminded of a a situation that some many years ago now in the uk when there was a novelist called monica ali who wrote a, a novel called brick lane um very popular hmm. novel and they decided to make a film and the film was going to be and brick lane for people who don't know is is a, is a neighborhood in in east london where a lot of uh, immigrants from Bangladesh, particularly um, Sileti immigrants, came and made a community there in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and it's now mm. the kind of symbolic heart of British Bangladeshi culture. And so, I mean, first titling a novel that makes makes a, a particular claim, and there was some grumbling around around her because her dad, I think, is from Dhaka, is not from... Uh, is not and it's not Sileti, and she has like me, a, 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 I believe, a, a white mother. So you know, was she an authentic representative of the community? She also just happened to be a woman as well, which is in a very interesting kind yeah. of uh, sort of inflection in this situation. But anyway, when the film was in production, somebody put it around that there was a scene in the film where somebody adulterates a pot of curry in a restaurant. And this is a neighborhood mm. which which <laughs> survives on its restaurant trade. And the idea yeah. that in this movie they were going to kind of suggest that um, that people were poisoning food. This this uh, this rumor got around and uh, mm. and a demonstration was held against the filming of the book. And it was it it was very interesting to see it all kind of of, of blowing up. And, and you know, it was a completely fake rumor. There was no such scene. And it seemed to be much more kind of motivated by the question of who should control representation of that community in the wider culture. And um, oh. and it also, in the way of all these things, had kind of local political currents in that it turned out that certain people were running for council seats and certain people wanted to stand mm. in front of the demonstration and see and be seen as community representatives. But the question is always when you when you kind of 
offer a, a, a politics of authenticity to a, a, a minority is who steps forward mm. to claim the role of judge and, and who, is the, who are the community representatives. And very often it's cultural and religious conservatives. And in the UK, we've had during the Blair years when Tony Blair was trying to kind of regain support amongst British Muslims after having taken the UK into the Iraq war, he decided mm. to um, to offer some kind of legal protection uh, against offence. I mean, you know, obviously there's the, there's, the long, there's the long history about religious offence in Islam going as far back as the Rushdie affair and, and, the, mm. and the various kind of post 9-11 provocations and so on. Blair, Blair said, we're going to, going to protect your uh, religion from offence. And I mean, this worried a lot of people uh, in the media, in the arts. And, and basically, I mean, I was very opposed to it because I saw that it was basically putting a weapon in the hands of anybody who wished to claim offence in, yeah. in order to shut down dissenting opinions. And the people who suffer in those situations are often minorities within the minority. So in in a world where the old men get to decide who's an authentic uh, uh, representative and what offence consists of, it's the it's the dissenter, it's the the young woman, it's the it's anybody you know it's often those people who bear the brunt of that rather than the the people at the centre who feel that they're offering fairness. So there are dangers with the politics of authenticity, even though as I'm absolutely in agreement with you about the positive way that authenticity can be used to to kind of mm. define a community to kind of to sort of often you know in a sort of post-colonial setting or uh, you know to to for people to kind of regain their sense of autonomy and their sense of control mm. over their own lives it's just it is a deeply complicated area that's such a good point Hari, why did you start a podcast? Like, what's been that journey like so far? Well, it's been great fun. I, like many of us, you know, I, I love the sort of narrative style of, of, of podcasts. Mm. I like the intimacy of, uh, and the kind of informality of, of, of the sort of podcast narrative culture. And so when I was approached by Pushkin Industries, you know, they said, you know, we like what you do. We like the way your mind works. Tell us some stories. And they were kind of amazing. They sort mm. of said to me, you know, we, we'd we like, you know, you to to make a podcast about the things that interest you. So I put together a very, it's a really a very loose kind of notion and that it should be a podcast about opposites, about about kind of the big cultural binaries that we use to organize our thinking you know life and death public and private mm. these kind of you know very obvious things but i'd use that to to tell to tell very particular stories and often stories which trouble those oppositions or get into the to the gray area in in between things i mean i'm the question of life and death is uh, is is fascinating in that regard and that you'd think that would be the clearest boundary line that we could draw but it turns out that there are I went looking for the accepted scientific definition of life and I found a paper which contained mm. 123 rival definitions. <laughs> um, and and so even, you know, if you can't even say for sure what's alive and what's dead, and of course, you know, here we are, our entire, entire, the world is being dominated by a virus. You know, famously, viruses can't reproduce on their own, which is they need the reproductive system of other cells in order to make copies of themselves. So viruses are neither really fully alive or fully dead. 
they're these kind of strange kind of borderline undead you know entities and um and that's completely uh, one of the one of those is in charge at the moment. So I mean, these these kind of questions fascinate me. They're a way into kind of unpacking all sorts of areas of culture and politics, and, and mixing scientific stories in with historical stories, and you know, doing what novelists do, which is sort of blending a lot of different things together. So it's been really fun, really fun to make. And I've been listening to it. It is intellectually invigorating. I will say this. I've been enjoying almost all episodes. I listened to an episode where you describe your granddad's Haveli. It was such a visual depiction. It reminded me of my grandparents' house in, in the village where we used to go almost every winter. And so I highly, highly recommend it. And it's available on all platforms, right? It is, yes, all the usual places that you can get podcasts into the zone, it's cool. So let's talk about something else. You've said this before, that you've always felt intuitively that people are connected in ways we don't fully acknowledge. And especially we are in the midst of a pandemic right now. And I see that there is a shift in how... American population is approaching the idea of collectivism and connecting with others. Can you elaborate on this? And are we like connected as souls or are you talking about systems or society that really connects us? Well, maybe it's something even more tangible than systems of society. I mean, right now, I mean, mm. we have to wrestle with the idea that our health, you know, the, what more personal thing could there be yeah. than the kind of yeah. the health of your body? that we're actually interdependent in in that way. I think in, in America, there's a huge um, resistance to any kind of level of explanation over and beyond the individual. In the, in the US, the mm. individual is a sovereign category. And obviously, the, the suspicion of collectivism has a history in the Cold War and the opposition to communism. And even before mm. that, the 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 kind of the battle between the unions and the bosses which goes right back into the the days of the the robber barons and i think a lot of it comes out of a of a sort of uh protestant notion of um personal responsibility i mean that's very much what you would still hear from a republican politician here is that uh, you know, it's it's wrong to ascribe social causes to bad behavior because ultimately, you know, you had the choice whether to steal the bottle of water from the the store or not. Um, mm. And that has its limits. I mean, you know, I mean, even if you are, uh, whether you're whatever kind of political liberal you are and if you feel mm. that there's, the individual is a very sort of sacred and sovereign category, you still have to deal with collective life and collective action in some way. The pandemic has brought us up against the limits of that kind of thinking. I mean, the exactly. disastrous public health response here in the US and the kind of absolute somehow sort of inability for people to imagine that they could work together in a in a sort of self-sacrificing way in order to minimize the impact of the pandemic i mean that's that's a huge huge disaster for this country it's been economically devastating and and it seems to, there's a sort of failure of imagination and a failure mm. to to really believe in the impact that you have on other lives and 
other places which maybe have a greater sort of tradition of social democracy have done better because the public conversation has sort of long accepted that there are certain sorts of things that we're all in it together for. You know, you would pay taxes because we all want roads and, mm. uh, you know, a fire service or whatever. I mean, and especially countries, for example, which have a sort of universal healthcare system. I mean, I think I think that's a profound difference. If you feel that when you fall ill, the state will catch you or the collective will catch you, Exactly. That gives you a sort of investment in in maintaining that and a kind of pride in that, I think, that is absent here in that you know if you fall in the U.S., people will step over you on the street. In America, the focus is also on individual because it's tied to strengthening state versus strengthening communities. I, 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 I suppose I put it slightly differently. You know, I, I think, I mean, there's un, understandable historical reasons for, for, for why Americans are skeptical of the state. Very often local government has been rapacious and illegitimate and hasn't had the best interests of people at heart. And the kind of collective institutions that people have experienced positively, very often religious ones. I mean, the church groups here... Uh, function, you know, to give social services and various other other things, and and they are much more trusted, for example, on the right than than sort of the state would be. I mean, the narrative of mm. big government and you know Reagan's famous but rather fatuous statement of you know the most scary words in the American language are I'm I'm from the government, I'm here to help. You know, I think I think people need to kind of reconceptualize their relationship to collective action and to collective governance just because from the very practical reason i mean it's not it's not working what is happening here is a mm. is a is a disaster unparalleled anywhere else in the world and it's a disaster that has grown up partly because of this massive distrust of of any kind of disbelief in the collective it's not it's, it's more than mistrust it's like a kind of deep-seated inability to imagine mm. a collective life in which we might all have stakes together. I mean, it, this obviously has consequences for beyond the pandemic. And the environment is the the obvious commons that we all have to try and maintain in some way. So this is there's going to have to be a new politics and a new political imaginary that doesn't reduce the dignity of the individual and it doesn't reduce, I think, in most meaningful ways, the freedom of, uh, of the individual. In fact, mm, I mean, from my mm. point of view, you're much freer if, you, if you're if you not terrified of falling ill all the time. You're not terrified of being bankrupted because you have an illness. I mean, that freedom to choose your doctor is a banal, silly little freedom compared to the freedom to go about your life without fear of sickness. So there are kind of, I mean, maybe what we need is a redefinition of freedom. I mean, for freedom is the American exactly. you know, concept supreme, then then we need to rethink what that actually means. Yeah, because America is a country where nuclear weapons that are, by the way, funded by public are source of freedom or at least symbolize freedom, while public funded healthcare is considered oppressive. Exactly. Isn't that ironic? Well, the I mean, the example that people often turn to here is the internet, which is a government-funded uh, sort of research 
tool initially yeah. and you know instead of i mean silicon valley which which prides itself in in being this kind of you know maverick libertarian bandits i mean that's actually a, you know an, an outgrowth of massive government subsidy from the cold war so there's a lot of bad faith here you know it's the same bad yeah. faith that um red state senators have when they talk about um the horrors of, of, of the federal government without kind of explaining to their constituents that actually they're, they're subsidized in their small state by the tax base of large states exactly. like New York and, and California. So without federalism, Kansas wouldn't function. You know, North Dakota wouldn't be able to function. Alaska in particular would not be able to function. So, so there are unacknowledged kinds of collectivism in the U.S. culture. Which that, nobody talks about. Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, there's something that could have an honest conversation about the, the sort of uh, mm. the actual systems and networks of collective life here. Ari, you're also a novelist. Um, how much of yourself do you give to your characters, if, if at all? Well, I mean, the you know they're all me in in one sense. Obviously, mm. they you know they're all they all have some sliver or fragment of me in them. I'm not somebody who can write very straightforwardly autobiographically. I like to kind of refract my various feelings and opinions through characters, and I like the novel because it allows me to sort of stage things in a way. I can stage conflicts and debates and 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 mm. situations and and kind of play them out i mean i i was a you know i was a teenage role player and i i think that's probably got some uh <laughs> bearing on on my love of fiction as a novelist what kind of relationship do you have with your intuition and how much does that go into your writing I kind of try and garden it if if, if that's a, if that's a sort of meaningful thing I think it's very mm. important to have mm. a a non-rational part to your creative practice you know I mean I, I a lot of my life is to do with constructing arguments and debates and being coherent and mm. and conducting other kinds of conversation but with the fiction often the starting point for me is is a kind of collection of images or feelings that that I feel should go together and the novel is a way of kind of exploring those and just working out why that sort of intuitive arrangement of things should make sense. You know, I mean, a novel can start from me or, you know, has started for me from, from very abstract images. Mm. And I often kind of leave it as late as possible in the process to really nail down certain reasons why things are happening. I mean, I, I wrote a novel set out in the California desert and I knew there needed to be a couple with a missing child, and I knew it. I knew there needed to be something to do with UFOs. And for a long time, I mm. had absolutely no understanding why those things should be together. But I, I, oh. I held my nerve until a sort of connection started to, to arise. That's so interesting. So your recent novel, Red Pill, it's a story about surveillance and privacy. It talks about paranoia. It talks about mental health. Donald Trump's election into the White House. How was it writing a novel explaining American dystopia and yet experiencing it in a way or living it at the same time? Well, it, I mean, a novel is inevitably always a filter for the, the feelings and thoughts that you have while you're writing it. And hmm. I mean, in a way, it's been very good for me in the last few years to have a, to be able to sit down at my desk and scream silently <laughs> it sort of allowed me to to function more or less normally in the rest of my 
life. But the real thing that I wanted to capture in Red Pill is a sense of anxiety that I think is almost universal at the moment, whether, you, mm. you know, you can, mm. and it's not just Trump, it's it's a wider sense that the, the sort of culture is, is shifting and that the future is much more uncertain maybe than we we gave it credit for. And I wanted to describe that because I think that's the feeling that's very much, it's a, very, it's a feeling with complex causes and it's a, it's a sort of slightly ineffable feeling that I wanted to get down on paper now because I think in three years' time we'll feel differently. And, you know, I mean, with any luck, we will feel better. But mm. for now, that seemed to be a, a job that a novel could do very well that a sort of essay or, a, you know, a, a, an argument about the news couldn't. It's to sort of try and, and, and reflect back to people this sort of profound unease that seems to underlie everything mm. at the moment the thing that makes us stay up late at night scrolling on our phones and it could be cathartic work of imagination writing a novel it's it, i mean if, on a personal level it always it always is I mean, if you give form to something you're able to name it you're able to kind of mm. you know uh, to to look at it and in and say yes this is what i'm feeling in these this is maybe why i'm feeling it so yes it it, it does me good and i i hope it does the reader good as well <laughs> You have two kids, right? I do. If you had to pick one thing you wanted your children to learn from you, what would it be? That's so hard to answer. I mean, I'm in compassion. I think that would be, mm. you know, there's an attitude towards the world that I would like them to have, you know, regardless of what they do, I would like them to to have compassion for others and compassion for uh, and to approach the world in that spirit. And all the craziness and the chaos around us, how are you creating order in your life right now? Is there a routine? Are you doing something special? Is there a self-care routine that you follow? There is a, a routine. I mean, I'm I'm lucky in that I have the ability to work and we do have some childcare, which is which makes all the difference. So I mean yeah. I'm trying to kind of forget that there was once a world where I visited other places and and uh, went to restaurants and so on and I'm you yeah. know I'm I'm so far you know we're healthy and and my parents who I haven't been able to see for almost a year now are are still healthy although they're you know isolated in 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 Britain and you know aren't able to move around very much my work is providing a lot of that just a very sort of simple routine of cooking and making sure the children feel safe and happy and um what i mean actually right now watching watching very tense french spy drama on the, on the <laughs> uh, streaming every evening that's a kind of that's a routine the end of the day the end of the day is a little more doom scrolling on the phone, look at whatever chaos has happened and watching spies who have much bigger troubles than mine. You know, I started watching Shit's Creek and I've been binge watching that series. Like I am almost done with the entire season <laughs> series. It has six seasons and I was oh, like, wow. you know, this is what I need right now. My husband, on the other hand, he likes to watch anime, which I never understood why, but that's his thing. We watch we watch some Miyazaki together as a family. I mean, we're Spirited Away and Ponyo and these and these. Just I've never been a huge anime guy. I mean, I, huh. Akira and one or two others were were kind of big moments. But um, wow, I mean, that's yeah. You and your husband clearly have to have two different screens then. 
<laughs> you know, surprisingly, he also enjoys Shit's Creek. Oh well, that's good. That's clearly why you're married. You can. You there is a, there is a, a, a common ground there. Exactly, but I can't watch anime. So when he puts it on, I when he switches it on, I just leave the room. I'll go to read something, do something else, um, browse on my phone, but I just can't watch anime. It's not my thing. Um, mm. I can't even sit through it. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, Hari, in the end, if you were to describe America um, in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Messy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm all in here. You know, I've I've become, you know, this is where my life is and, and this is where... You know, my children were born here. I, I'm, yeah. you know, this. I need this place to work, and so this is why exactly. I'm, you know, I'm as engaged as I am with the the political conversation here. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, it, yeah, I find it infuriating, messy, and not without hope. That's a great way to put it. And as you said, we're all here because we want to be. Our children were born here, and. We want this place to work and that's why we criticize it because to me, criticism and dissent is patriotic. That's how you express yourself and that's how you hope things will get better. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the idea that criticism is is, is unpatriotic, I think, is one of the great mistakes of, uh, of the American conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Hari. This was so good. And by the way, where can people find your book and your podcast? So the podcast is called Into the Zone and is available on you know Apple and Stitcher and all the other places where people get their podcasts. Uh, the book is called Red Pill, and you you know get it from the the, the nearest independent bookstore to you because <laughs> they need your love right now. Thank you so much, Harry. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sadia. Thank you everyone for spending some time with me. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Hari, which was undoubtedly one of the most intellectually invigorating conversations I've had with a guest. Don't forget to check Hari's podcast, Into the Zone, which is available on every major platform. And so is Immigrantly. Write to us and tell us what you thought about this episode. Our email is info at immigrantlypod.com. Until next time, take care. Oh.